the 23rd Psalm. It is a most beautiful portion of Scripture. And it is probably the one portion of music, the one portion that is sung metrically most at funerals. I don't know how many times I've been at a service of memorial or a funeral service and they have sung the 23rd Psalm. When my parents were both buried, when they were having their funerals, we sang the 23rd Psalm at each of their services. It is a very comforting portion of Scripture. It's also a portion of Scripture that belongs to a particular people. There's a minister who's now with the Lord from Scotland. He was in the Free Church of Scotland, a man by the name of Douglas Macmillan. And he used to forbid the singing of the 23rd Psalm at certain funerals. That was very courageous of him. The reason that he did that is that he felt that the persons concerned or some of the families concerned, whatever the situation was, could not, in his view, enjoy the comfort of this psalm. That they were singing, The Lord's my shepherd. They were singing, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. And they were singing, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. And Macmillan felt, that was his own choice, his own opinion as a minister, that there were certain funerals at which that would not be appropriate. And he forbade the singing of the psalm. I don't know that I would ever do that. But I suppose it might be a temptation for a minister. There's nothing worse than standing beside a casket or beside a grave and thinking to yourself, this person who's about to be buried has not died in Christ as far as I know I have to put that caveat in there as far as I know because frankly I don't know I don't know what passes between a person and their God even in those last moments of life but what I do know is most people die just as they lived we read in the book of Ecclesiastes in that final chapter as a tree falls so does it lie And so it's a very solemn thing to consider death and dying, but particularly so in the light of Psalm 23. Now this psalm is not an isolated portion of Scripture. I want you to understand that it's one of a triumvirate of psalms. Psalm 22 obviously comes before 23, and 24 comes after 23. I, some time ago, produced a little outline which was that Psalm 22 is about the Saviour and His cross. My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? 
Again, in the same portion, Psalm 22, you see that it speaks of the sufferings of Christ. Verse 16, they pierced my hands and my feet. A portion that's very appropriate when you come to the New Testament. Verse 18 says, they part my garments among them and cast lots upon my vesture. That's exactly what the soldiers did when they were sitting under the cross of Christ. So, Psalm 22, no doubt, is the psalm of the Savior and his cross. Psalm 24, the other bookend of these three psalms, is the psalm of the sovereign and his crown. This is a wonderful psalm of victory. Because it talks about, in prophecy, the coming of Christ. The one who's described in this psalm as the King of glory. Verse 7, lift up your heads, O ye gates, and be ye lift up ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Again, you'll notice the word Lord is in small capitals. It's always in the Old Testament, when it's Lord or God in small capitals, Jehovah. Lift up your heads, O ye gates, even lift them up, ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory, Selah. This is the psalm of the sovereign and his crown. But in between... You have the story of the shepherd, you could say, and his crook. Or it might be more appropriate to say the shepherd and his care. Because that's what this Psalm 23 is all about. A shepherd and his sheep. But you'll see there that the emphasis in the Psalm is upon the person of the shepherd. There's not so much there about the sheep as about the one who cares for the sheep, the one who pastors the sheep, the one who feeds the sheep. Because all of these are included in the word shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. And notice then the use of the pronoun. He maketh me to lie down. He leadeth me. He restoreth my soul. He leadeth me in the paths of righteousness. Thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. Verse 5, Thou preparest a table. Thou anointest my head with oil. It's all about the shepherd and his care of the sheep. Psalm 23 is not a psalm that is in isolation. Obviously, it's part of the book of Psalms. This is a book of poems or songs. Items of praise, mostly written by David, some by Asaph, some even by Moses. The book of Psalms deals with Christian experience. That's why when you come to the Psalms, you often find things that are a reflection of how you're feeling yourself. Oftentimes the prayers that he utters are prayers that we find within our own hearts. The experiences that he has are experiences that Christians have all the time. Questioning. How long, O Lord? Wilt thou forget me forever? These are all common things to the believer. The book of Psalms deals with Christian experience. 
sometimes with very happy Christian experience. But sometimes not so happy experiences. But Psalm 23 is a psalm that belongs to God's people. And that's what I want to emphasize today. I've entitled this message, My Shepherd. It's borrowed from the first verse. The Lord, it's Jehovah, is my shepherd. That is very, very important. And we'll speak more of that as we go along. But it is important for us to think about who the shepherd is. Who is the shepherd of Psalm 23? Now, our response to that would be, well, it's, it's very easy to answer that. I know my Hebrew well enough. Psalm 23 begins with, Lord, the Lord, Jehovah, is my shepherd. Yes, that's true. It is Jehovah. It's absolutely right. But who is Jehovah? Jehovah is the covenant name of the Creator God. It's the covenant name of the triune God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And significantly, Jehovah is the name that speaks of God in relation to men as sinners. But more than that, it speaks of God in relation to men who are sinners who have come under God's saving purpose, His covenant of grace. The Lord is my shepherd, or Jehovah is my shepherd. As I had cause to go in and out of a hospice in Allentown, just about every day, every morning, I would encounter Jehovah's Witnesses, so-called. First of all, they're not Jehovah's Witnesses. That's what they call themselves, but that's not what they are. They're false witnesses. They are members of the Watchtower Society, founded by a man called Charles Taze Russell. And further, their teaching was developed by one Judge Rutherford. Both men were liars. One proven to be so in a court of law. When it was proven, he had absolutely no knowledge whatsoever of Greek. Even though he tried to tell everybody that John chapter 1 verse 1 is not as it is translated in our authorized version. He was wrong and is still wrong. But I thought to myself going in there, I'm going to take the opportunity to be a witness. A witness for Jehovah. The true Jehovah. And so there were, the first day I encountered them, there were a couple of ladies there. And I said to them, my wife is inside here in the hospice. Oh, we're very sorry. I said, yes, and there are many other people in there as well. Tell me this. If I'm a person in there and I have five minutes to live... Five minutes to live. What is your message for me? Well, they were kind of flummoxed and the ones said, well, talk to God. I said, what do you mean talk to God? How do you talk to God? Talk to God about what? How do you get to God? So they really didn't have any answer. One of them said that you had to join the Jehovah's Witnesses. Well, that's a bit late for that, isn't it? You have five minutes to live. A bit late to be... Uh, 
whatever they do to initiate you into that false cult. So I took the opportunity, first of all, to tell them that Jehovah is Jesus. I worship Jehovah Jesus. I pointed them to Isaiah 44, verse 6, where Jehovah, by their admission, says, I am the first and I am the last. I said, well, compare that to Revelation chapter 1, verse 11. And who says, I'm the first and the last? Jesus says it. Jesus is Jehovah. Well, I didn't like that. I told them the only way to go to God, the message for a person who has five minutes to live is, repent of your sins and believe the gospel. Come to the Lord Jesus Christ who died on the cross for sinners. Shed His blood for their sins. Trust in Him wholly, fully, and completely to take away your sins. Call upon His name and you'll be saved. Just like the dying thief who, when he went to paradise, didn't go down, he went up. We had a bit of a discussion with that also, by the way. Paradise, they believe, is on the earth. I said, no, it's not. You go to the book of Revelation, paradise is in the midst of the throne of God. You'll also find that when Paul was caught up, He was caught up, not down. Where to? To the third heaven. Tried to tell me there was no heaven. I said, there's a heaven all right. My wife is in there expecting to go there, and she will go there when the time is right. But you're not going there. If you continue to believe the nonsense that you're teaching here, which has absolutely no value for anyone, five minutes to live or not, you have no message for me or anyone else, except the false message. And if you continue to hold to it, you will go to hell. A place that you don't even believe in. Because I know the Jehovah's Witnesses, so-called, don't believe in hell. They don't believe in the deity of Jesus Christ. How could Christ die for our sins when He's just a mere man, a creation of God, so therefore He's a sinner Himself? How could He take our sins away when He has sins of His own? I'm starting to get away from what I was going to preach today. But it's relevant The Lord is my shepherd. Jehovah is my shepherd. Study your Bible. You'll find who that is. It's the Lord Jesus Christ. It's the triune God. It's the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You go back to the book of Genesis. You'll find that Jacob was looking for a blessing. Not only for his children, but his grandchildren. He was looking to the God who had made him, who had kept covenant with him, You'll read it there in Genesis 48, verse 15. Jehovah, who he said, had fed him and shepherded him, who had revealed himself to him as the angel or the messenger of the covenant. And you look at that and think to yourself, who was that messenger? It was Christ in the Old Testament. This was a Christophany. Jacob was blessed as he wrestled with the angel. That angel of God we know was a Christophany. The angel who delivered him from evil was Christ. The messenger or the angel of the covenant. So this theme of the shepherd deals with a God who is a God of the covenant of grace. And it deals specifically with God in his saving relationship to his people. That is why you read Psalm 23 and immediately you have to ask the question, does it belong to you? Can you say this? 
The Lord is my shepherd. Who is the shepherd of the psalm? It's the Lord. You study your Bible, you'll find that this theme of the shepherd is all the way through. And not least do we see the shepherd character in our Lord Jesus Christ in a number of references in the New Testament. But it is really important for us to think about this question. Can I honestly say this morning, the Lord is my shepherd? The story, it's a true story, is told of a children's missionary in Scotland. That's very apropos to our family because my wife went to Scotland as a missionary. That's how I met her. She was a missionary to children. But this missionary to children in the Scottish Highlands had children's meetings in little village halls and a number of the local children came. And she taught them the 23rd Psalm. And she taught them a little graphic that they could use, something for their memory, which is to take the fingers of their hand and to say, as a memory verse, the Lord is my shepherd. And she said, be sure that this one is yours. Grasp it with your other hand. The Lord is my shepherd. She taught the children to do this. There was a little boy there at those meetings who was a shepherd. His father was a shepherd. He was working on the shepherds on the uh, sheepfold as well in the, the farm there. One day he went out to tend the sheep and there came a sudden blizzard, a really bad one. And the child was caught in that blizzard. Couldn't find his way home. Never did get home. His body was found in a snowdrift by those that went out to search for him days afterwards. When they found the little boy, he was holding this finger with his hand. And nobody knew the significance of that except the children's missionary. She was able to explain to them, I know why he's doing that. Because he's telling us, even in death, the Lord is my shepherd. I am his, and he is mine. Can you say that? Never rest until you can. Don't just be satisfied with a profession of that. It's easy to say it. It may not be true. But who is this shepherd? I want us to think about three things in relation to my shepherd. In the first place you'll see, and we're going to go to the New Testament to several scriptures there. We'll see that the shepherd is referred to in John chapter 10 verse 11. And there he is seen in the character of a redeemer. He's the good shepherd, which speaks to us of redemption. Now go to John chapter 10. Many have referred to this as the Psalm 23 of the New Testament. For obvious reasons. Because it talks all about, in the first part of the chapter, the shepherd and the sheepfold and the sheep. But John chapter 10, down in verse 11, the Lord Jesus is speaking. And he says, I am the good shepherd. By the way, this is one of seven I am statements of Christ. I am the light of the world. I am the true vine. I am the way, the truth, and the life. 
I am the bread of life, and so on. Here it is, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Notice carefully here that the Lord's talking to people who were steeped in Old Testament truth. They knew the Bible. They knew the Old Testament. These were Jewish people. They knew that scripture about Jehovah being their shepherd. He was especially the shepherd of Israel. We learn this in a number of scriptures, not least in Psalm 80. It says there, in verse 1, Give ear, O shepherd of Israel, thou that leadest Joseph like a flock. He was the shepherd of the Jews, the shepherd of Israel, as he was not to any other people. They were his covenant people. But the Lord's standing before these people and he says, I am the good shepherd, the good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. I think it's important for us to note that the Lord Jesus is claiming here an identity. He's identifying himself with the shepherd of Old Testament Scripture. I am the good shepherd. To a Jewish person, that only meant one thing. It meant God. I am the good shepherd. They knew what he meant. There was only one who was good. And there was only one true shepherd. And there was only one who had the right to the title, the good shepherd. Here's somebody that they knew. He was brought up among them at Nazareth. And he stands in front of these folk and he says, I am the good shepherd. It's interesting how they responded to that. Look at John chapter 10. We've read verse 11, but read down there later in the chapter. In verse 33, the Jews answered him saying, For a good work we stone thee not, but for blasphemy, and because that thou being a man makest thyself God. See, these Jewish people knew what the Jehovah's Witnesses so-called don't know. And the Mormons and other cults. Jesus is God. He claimed to be God. I am was a very title of deity. And here they're charging him with blasphemy because he's making himself equal with God. That's what the claim was, I am the good shepherd. It's a claim to full, absolute deity. He's identifying himself with the one that they knew from Psalm 23 as the shepherd. Don't make any mistake about that. The Lord Jesus Christ claimed absolute identity with God, the eternal one. The idea that Jesus never claimed to be divine is such a nonsense. He received worship on a regular basis. You know when John fell down, or Thomas fell down in front of him in the book of John, chapter 20, he exclaimed, My Lord and my God. Jesus didn't rebuke him. Jesus didn't say, Thomas, get up. Get up, don't be silly. There was a man who tried to worship Peter once, fell down at his feet. Whether he was trying to kiss his ring or not, I don't know. Certainly he fell down at his feet and Peter said, get up. Get up. I'm a man just like you are. 
Jesus didn't do that. He received worship. I am the good shepherd. But notice not only the identity that the Lord showed here, but the very characteristic that was the leading characteristic of the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. There's redemption. He's speaking here as the Redeemer. And that's the very main characteristic of the Lord Jesus as the Good Shepherd. He giveth his life for the sheep. That's what makes him the Good Shepherd. Now I want you to note carefully the wording here. John 10, verse 11. The Good Shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. He doesn't merely say the Good Shepherd dies for the sheep. The truth that the Lord teaches here is more wonderful than that. He not only died for the sheep, he came to give himself as a voluntary sacrifice in death for the sheep. Look at verses 17 and 18. Therefore doth my Father love me, because I lay down my life, that I might take it again. No man taketh it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have power to lay it down, and I have power to take it again. This commandment have I received of my Father. He's not talking here about suicide. That's not what he's talking about. He's talking about willingly laying down his life voluntarily, freely for sinners. And he goes on to give the authority that he had for laying down his life. Verse 18 again. This commandment have I received of my Father. The Lord's doing something that he's commissioned to do. He's fulfilling the commission given him by his Father. He has the authority as the fountain and the source of life, his Father, to do what he did, to lay down his life for the sheep. The difference between the death of Jesus, the sacrificial death of Jesus, and everybody else's death is that the Lord Jesus is active in that death. Remember on the cross what he said? Father, into thy hands I commend my spirit. He gave up his life in death. When death comes for each one of us, we're going to be victims of the last great enemy. But not Jesus. He wasn't the victim of death. He was its conqueror. He overcame death by his death. He took death to himself. Into thy hands I commend my spirit. There was a great professor many decades ago at Princeton called Professor John Murray. And he said of Christ, death was not his fate, it was his deed. He said, it is as though the eternal Son of God took his human body in one hand and his human soul in the other and he rent them, he rent them apart. This is what death was for Jesus. The separation of soul from body. And it was his own act. The personal act of the Son of God. Sacrificing himself. Laying down his life for the sheep. You see death has been vanquished. It has been overcome. It has been quenched by the Lord Jesus Christ. The Lord Jesus Christ is the Good Shepherd, the one who is the Redeemer, the one who has laid down his life 
for us. And you think about the sheep, that they belong to him, because he purchased them. The price of his own precious blood, that incredible price, that's what he paid, as Paul put it, we're bought with a price. And he, he has purchased us. That's words that are used in Acts chapter 20, verse 28. The church of God which he hath purchased with his own blood. So he's entitled to say, I'm the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. And that's why, friends, if you claim to be saved, you're not your own. I am not my own. I can't dictate to God what I should do or, or should not do with my life. That's up to Him. I am His. I belong to Him. He's bought me with a price. Paul could say, you're not your own. You're bought with a price. That means that the Lord has laid claim to our lives. He has the right to tell us what to do. Oh, how that cuts across the worldly attitude today. I'll do whatever I want to do. No one will tell me what to do. No one will dictate to me. I'll do what I want to do. Not if you're the Lord's, you won't say that. You'll say with Paul when he got saved as Saul of Tarsus, Lord, what will thou have me to do? Because we're his. We're really not our own. And God is well within his rights to lay claim upon every part of our lives. A man called Philip Keller was a shepherd. He wrote a very wonderful commentary on the 23rd Psalm. And it is from the perspective of an earthly shepherd. And he talked about one time when, in his first venture with sheep, the question of paying a price for certain ewes, that's the female sheep, was really important to him. He said, these ewes belong to me only by virtue of the fact that I had paid hard cash for them. It was money that I earned by the blood and the sweat and tears drawn from my own body during the desperate grinding years of the Depression. He said, and when I bought that first small flock of ewes, I was buying them literally with my own body, which had been laid down with that day in mind. And he's drawing a parallel here. He said, because of this, I felt in a special way that those sheep were in very truth a part of me, and I was a part of them. There was an intimate connection, identity involved, which, though not apparent on the surface to the casual observer, nevertheless made those 30 ewes, those female sheep, exceedingly precious to me. But Keller said, the day I bought them, I also realized that this was only the first stage in a long-lasting endeavor in which from then on I would, as their owner, have to continually lay down my life for them. If they were to flourish and prosper. Because you see, sheep don't just take care of themselves. Of all the animals, of all the livestock, they need the most work and care and diligent shepherding. They require more than any other class of livestock, endless attention, meticulous care. They have to be watched over. And isn't that why the Lord has referred to us, his people, as his sheep? 
There's so many reasons we could think of why that should be, because the behavior of sheep and the behavior of human beings is often very similar. We have mob instincts like sheep have. We're often fearful and timid like sheep. Sometimes we're stubborn and we're stupid like sheep. They often do really dumb things, sheep. And our perverse habits all are paralleled in the lives of sheep. And yet when we think of the adverse characteristics that we have, the Lord Jesus still chooses us. He still buys us. He purchases us. He calls us by our names. He makes us his own sheep. And he delights in caring for us as his sheep. I have a shepherd. One I love so well. How he has blessed me, tongue can never tell. On the cross he suffered, shed his blood and died. That I might ever in his love confide. Following Jesus Ever day by day, nothing can harm me when he leads the way. Darkness or sunshine, whatever befall, Jesus my shepherd is my all in all. What a great testimony that is. He is the good shepherd. But here again we have to move on and speak of him in the second place. As the great shepherd. The Lord is my shepherd. Who is my shepherd? He's the good shepherd that gives his life. There's redemption. But he's the great shepherd. And as we read Hebrews 13 verse 20, we'll discover that that particular verse sheds more light still on the question, who is the shepherd of Psalm 23? Here's a letter written by Paul to people who were very attracted to the Mosaic ritual and all of its ceremonies. And he had come to tell them that Christ fulfilled these things. But one of the most basic concerns that Paul has in Hebrews is to tell these Jewish believers that they have not in fact suffered loss. They have gained in the fact that the types and the shadows and the ceremonies have all fled away. And Paul's letter closes with a prayer for these people. A great benediction. And you will notice that in that benediction, Hebrews 13 verse 20, he speaks first of all of the God of peace. Now, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the everlasting covenant, make you perfect in every good work to do his will. The great shepherd. It speaks to us of resurrection. But when we think about the God of peace, and think about this title, it makes us to wonder why he should be referred to in that way. Well, it's for the simple reason that he made peace. He's the God of peace because he made peace. How did he make peace? He did it through the good shepherd who laid down his life for the sheep. And as Paul says in this prayer, through the blood of the everlasting covenant. See that? That great shepherd of the sheep 
He's brought again from the dead through the blood of the everlasting covenant. What does that mean? Well, it means that God has been satisfied. God has been reconciled by the death of Christ, by the shedding of his blood. And God showed that he was satisfied with the sacrifice of Jesus by raising him from the dead. That's the proof that his work has been accepted. See, if the Lord Jesus had remained dead, how would we know that his work had accomplished anything? Well, it would not have accomplished anything. Because we then, when we die, would have no hope of resurrection. But he's the God of peace, who has brought peace and wrought peace by the blood of Christ's cross. Colossians chapter 1 teaches us that. The God of peace, that's how you need to know him. The one who you've been reconciled to, the one who's brought peace into your heart, and who allows you to live with all the changing awful circumstances of this world with his peace undergirding everything so that you know that all is well Horatio Spafford wrote that beautiful hymn in the light of human tragedy in his life you probably know the story his wife and girls were travelling overseas on a ship the ship foundered many many people were drowned and Spafford got a message from his wife a telegram which simply said saved alone their daughters had perished at sea and in his brokenness of heart Horatio Spafford sat down some time after that and wrote the hymn it is well with my soul though Satan should buffet though trials should come let this blessed assurance control that Christ hath regarded my helpless estate and hath shed his own blood for my soul. It is well. It is well with my soul. Every believer can say that, no matter what the circumstances of life. Now, you think about this, the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Who else but God could do that? Our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep. And again, you can see he's identified for us clearly unmistakably as the shepherd of the sheep. He's the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd. And what's the leading characteristic of the shepherd here? As the good shepherd, we know it was redemption. It was laying down his life for the sheep in sacrifice. But now as the great shepherd of the sheep, the leading characteristic of his shepherdhood is this. He has taken that life again that he laid down. Resurrection. Body and soul have been reunited and that's why he's able today to shepherd us see we're not worshipping a memory you don't go to a grave and say well there's where Jesus laid great figure from history but he's gone, he's dead no, the grave is empty you can go over there to Jerusalem and you'll be able to see it for yourself he is risen as he said the grave is vacated, it's empty Because he rose again according to the scriptures. And therefore he's living today. He is our shepherd. It's not that he was our shepherd. He is our shepherd. The great shepherd of the sheep. And he's able to save. Because he ever liveth to make intercession for us. The Lord lives in the power of an endless life. 
He lives in a life that can't be quenched. And that is why we're able to say with John Owen that Christ died the death of deaths in his death. The death of death in the death of Christ is a great work by John Owen. Jesus has overcome death. Think about this. A dead shepherd would be of no use to the sheep, would he? A dead shepherd would be of no use to the sheep. Who would protect them? Who would lead them? Who would feed them? Who would guide them? Where I come from in the UK, sometimes there's really bad weather, and if the sheep are caught out on the mountains in snow, they can't get to the grass, and oftentimes the sheep farmer has to go out on some kind of an all-terrain vehicle and carry bales of hay with him, bring food to the sheep, make sure they're all right, make sure that they're not in any danger. A dead shepherd is no good to the flock. And that's why we don't believe in having the figure of Jesus on the cross. There was a family visiting the city of London and they were being shown uh, around a big church and at the end of that church there was a huge cross and on that cross there was a crucifix. And apparently the children of that family were really horrified by that and the reason is that they were brought up in a Presbyterian church and they weren't used to that anyway. But the one child said, Daddy, look at that. Isn't that awful? And the father said, well, why, why is it awful? The youngest one, who's only nine years old, said, well, it's awful because he's not dead now, is he? He's not dead now, is he? He's not on the cross. He's off the cross. He's risen. He's ascended. He's not lying in somebody's arms, helpless. He's on the throne. He's a living Savior. And he's able to save to the uttermost all who come unto God by him. He is the great shepherd. There's resurrection. But there's a third scripture that sheds light on Psalm 23 verse 1. The Lord is my shepherd. And here it is in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 4. 1 Peter 5 verse 4. We've talked about the death, the sacrificial death of the shepherd, the good shepherd. We've talked about the resurrection of the great shepherd now look at what we're talking about 1st Peter chapter 5 verse number 4 and when the chief shepherd shall appear ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away now in the context you will see that Peter is referring to the work of elders those who are overseers of the flock of God and you'll notice in verse 2 of 1 Peter 5, he gives a command. Feed the flock of God which is among you, taking the oversight thereof. That's pastoring. Feeding the flock of God. That's what a shepherd does. Peter himself knew all about that because when Jesus restored him in John chapter 21, what did he say? Three times. Peter, feed my lambs. Feed my sheep. Feed my sheep. You're a shepherd. You're an under-shepherd. So he says, feed the flock of God. That's the job of God's men, to feed the flock. So that God's people are not starving. In many a church this morning, I want to tell you, people are starving. 
because they are not taught the Bible. Little ditties and platitudes. That's about it. But the preaching of Christ, the exposition of his word, it's missing in many, many instances. I know it is. We're to feed the flock of God as shepherds. Because when the chief shepherd shall appear, there's the coming of Christ, there's the reward. Here's the reward. When the chief shepherd appears, ye shall receive a crown of glory that fadeth not away. Now I know that there are preachers who will talk all about different crowns. And you'll you'll have pictures of people with all these crowns on top of their head. I have a more spiritual view of that than a literal one. But I must confess, when it says you'll receive a crown of glory, I don't really know what that entails. I'm not sure what that means. A crown of glory that fadeth not away. I do know that whenever they ran races in Olympic competition in the Greek games, they were given a, a, a laurel wreath around their head. The victor got a wreath put on his head. And eventually those leaves would die, they would wither. That's why the Bible lays stress on the fact that this crown will not wither. That fadeth not away. The leaves are not going to fade on this crown. Now Peter's writing to people specifically who are going to suffer persecution. That's what First Peter really is all about. They're not to think it's strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, First Peter 4, 12. He said, don't be thinking it as a strange thing when you come under a lot of fiery persecution. Your faith's going to be tested. But the Lord is still in control. And the message that I'm giving to you is be faithful. Be faithful. Stay with it. And if you are faithful, here's what's going to happen. When the chief shepherd shall appear, and he will. The coming of Christ is as sure as it can be. You shall receive a crown of glory. That's the chief characteristic of our Lord as the chief shepherd. It is that he gives a crown of glory. There's the reward. There's the crown of life. There's the crown of glory. Whatever it means, it must signify that at the second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, there's going to be a completeness and a perfection of glory experienced by every one of his people. We're going to be changed. And people who know me are going to be very happy about that. We're going to be changed. We're going to be perfect. We're going to be like him. And that's the essence of this crown of glory. We shall be like him. I made reference to this last Lord's Day. When he shall appear, we shall be like him. For we shall see him as he is. The chief shepherd brings us into the eternal realm. And yet there's going to be something of the good shepherd in him there too, isn't there? He'll still bear the marks of shame. When we see Jesus, as one of the hymns puts it, we'll know him by the nail print in his hands. He suffered as the good shepherd. As the great shepherd, he is risen and we're going to rise too. 
But supremely as the chief shepherd, he's the one who's going to lead us, according to Revelation 7.17, onto living fountains of waters. Someone pointed out that this is an interesting thought. He will feed us, strangely, as the lamb. You know what a lamb is? A lamb is a baby sheep. You think about the Lord in that characteristic. He's, He's called the lamb, the lamb of God. Behold the Lamb, Revelation says. Over 20 times, I think it is, you have the word the Lamb in the book of Revelation, referring to Jesus. But it says He will feed us as the Lamb. What does a sheep need? Well, a lamb knows what a sheep needs because a a lamb is a sheep. He knows what we need. The Lord knows what you need today. He's your shepherd. He knows where you're to be led. He knows how to feed you. He knows how to guard you. He knows how to keep you. When you go astray, He knows how to bring you back. He is our shepherd. And because He's the Lamb, He's able to sympathize with us. He knows what it's like to be a sheep. He's led as a sheep to the slaughter. As a lamb before the shearers is dumb, he openeth not his mouth. Tempted and tried as we are, we have a perfect, sympathetic, wonderful shepherd in our Lord Jesus Christ. But let me again emphasize this. There's a mark that the shepherd often puts upon the sheep. Where I used to live, they wouldn't put physical marks on the sheep with a knife or something like that but what they would do is with a spray can of paint they would spray a colour on the hind end of the sheep so you see all these sheep up on the mountain and they're all with a little pink spot on them or a blue spot because they belong to a particular shepherd they belong to a particular flock and he can look out there and see immediately those are my sheep they're marked by me I know them and by the way they know him they know him. Philip Keller said the day he bought his first 30 yos earlier mentioned, he said him and his neighbor sat on a dusty corral rail that enclosed the sheep pens and admired those strong, well-bred yos. And turning to his friend, he said to Philip, look at this large, sharp killing knife. These sheep, Philip, are now yours And now you're going to have to put your mark on them. And he said, I knew exactly what he meant. Each sheep man has his own distinctive ear mark that he cuts into one or other of the the ears of his sheep. And in that way, even at a distance, it's easy to determine to whom the sheep belongs. And he said, it's not the most pleasant procedure to catch each of those female sheep in turn and lay her ear on a wooden block and then notch it deeply with a razor-sharp edge of a knife. He said there was pain in that for me and for the yo. But he said, from that mutual suffering, there was an indelible, lifelong mark of ownership that had been made that could never be erased. And from then on, every sheep, he said, that came into my possession would bear my mark. There's a tremendous parallel to this 
in the slave of the Old Testament, we mentioned this the other week, when a slave in any Hebrew household chose of his own will to become a lifetime member of that home, they took him out and subjected him to a ritual which involved putting him beside a piece of, a block of wood and putting the lobe of his ear against it and boring a hole in it. So that from then on, he was marked for life as belonging to that house. And so for each and every person who's truly saved, who recognizes the claims of Christ over his life, who gives allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ, he understands that Christ owns him. And there's now the question of bearing his mark. In a very real sense, as a believer professing to be saved in this world, you're a marked man or a marked woman. You are. As soon as you tell people, I am a Christian, you become a marked man. And they start looking for your faults. They start looking for the hypocrisy. They start looking for the chinks in your armor. And they want to remind you, I thought you were, I thought you were a Christian. I thought you said you were a Christian. You're a marked person. What is that mark for the believer? Jesus said, If any man would be my disciple, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. There's a cross to be borne. There's a price to be paid. There's a cost to be met. That doesn't save you. You don't buy salvation. But there is a cost. It costs to be a Christian. Decisions have to be made that cut across your own will. Cut across my will. Things that I would want that the Lord doesn't want. Things that the Lord wants that I don't want. Something has to give and it has to be me. And it's a tragic reality that many who have really never come under the direction or the management of the shepherd will claim... The Lord is my shepherd. You ask them the question. The Lord is my shepherd. They want that at their funeral. Maybe they think by just admitting that he is their shepherd that somehow they'll enjoy the benefits of his care and his management without any price to be paid. But you can't have it both ways. It was the Lord Jesus who said, No man can serve two masters. He'll either hold to the one and leave the other, or he'll despise the one and hold to the other. Remember what it says in Matthew chapter 7, fearful words. I often shudder when I read them myself. There's coming a day, Jesus said, what many, many will say, many. Lord, have we not done many wonderful works in thy name? Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in thy name? Lord, Lord, did we not do many wonderful works? Then will he say unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. That's a very serious and sobering thing. Do I really belong to him? Do I recognize the right of my shepherd to tell me what to do? Do I respond to his authority? Do I hear his voice? Do I acknowledge his ownership over my life? Do I follow his direction? Have I got peace in my heart knowing that he is my shepherd? Whatever happens. Can you say today with that little boy who grasped that ring finger, the Lord is my shepherd. I belong to him.
I'm thrilled to belong to him. I'm happy to identify with him. I'm not ashamed to call him my Lord. Because he gave his life willingly for me. He rose again that I might rise again. He's going to give me a crown of glory that fadeth not away when he returns. The Lord, my shepherd. May that be your testimony. May it be the testimony of all who hear this word today. Amen.